This is episode 211 with senior lecturer at Northumbria University, running coach and co-editor of the new book, The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running, Professor Phil Hayes. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features a discussion about the science of training runners with Professor Phil Hayes. We're learning new things about exercise physiology and how the body responds to stress. So that naturally means how we train today is very different than how we trained 20, 30, and definitely 40 years ago. You'll learn new ideas to incorporate into your running and a few habits that you might want to stop if you want to stay healthy and keep progressing. I also want to welcome all of our new listeners. The Strength Running Podcast is one of the top three most popular running podcasts ever in the United States. My goal is to help you think more strategically about your training, make smarter decisions about how you run, and introduce you to new ideas from thought leaders in the physical therapy, strength training, coaching, sports psychology, and other areas to help you keep improving. After all, knowledge is a competitive advantage. Don't miss Strength Running's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning and our home base, strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've helped tens of thousands of runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses on topics from strength to injury prevention, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you achieve your wildest ambitions as a runner. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you, and then they offer science-backed recommendations to improve. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com/strengthrunning. Okay, our guest today is Professor Phil Hayes, a senior lecturer at Northumbria University, where he spent 14 years as the leader of the Applied Sport and Exercise Science program. He researches muscle strength and how it affects running performance, your stride as you get tired, and your risk for injuries. He is a UK Athletics Level 4 running coach and has experience coaching kids, adults, and world-class athletes. His new book, The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running, is now available. In this conversation, we're focusing on what we know and what we don't know in the realm of exercise science. We cover common misconceptions about the process of improvement, actionable ideas that you can implement in your training today, the surprising changes in recovery science over the last 20 years, and why no pain, no gain sounds nice, but is the opposite of what you should actually be doing. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Professor Phil Hayes. All right. Hi, Phil. Thanks for speaking with me today. Hi, Jason. Thanks very much for inviting me on. So, Phil, you have a book out this year called The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running. And in the title of the book, you hint at a really interesting dichotomy, and that's the science of exercise with the art of coaching. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about this idea. 
Yeah, sure. Um, well, Rich Playgrove um, approached me. He's the, the co-editor of the book and said, said he was doing the book and was I interested in being involved. Uh, I kind of jumped at the chance. And the idea was really that there's lots of really good popular books out there. We wanted something that was perhaps a, a little more academic, scientific in terms of providing the, the scientific basis. But it's also about how you implement that. And so for me as a kind of person who's an academic and a coach, I think um, good coaching is about good decision-making. And, and so as a coach, I think the question you have to ask yourself is, what evidence am I using to make my decisions? Uh, and so this book was really about providing the best scientific evidence available and also having some um, some very practical applications of that information. So there's some chapters by practitioners. There's some parts in most of the chapters about um, you know how to how to use that information too. So that so that was the idea was to try and, and provide you know a, a good strong science evidence base and um, and sort of advice on how to use that information. Yeah, I love that because often as coaches we're doing things out in the field with our athletes that necess- that don't necessarily have a whole bunch of scientific studies that support it. I remember a long time ago. I was always telling runners that I think it's a good idea to rotate through a variety of different shoes, just wear two to three different pairs of shoes every week. And there really wasn't any science behind it. And then years later, they actually started publishing some studies showing that that actually can reduce your injury risk. So it's, it's always interesting to me to see coaches out in the field making decisions with their athletes to do certain things or to not do certain things, because they're almost like, Coaches are almost like running their own little laboratories, aren't they? they? They have their athletes, they have their team, and you know they're kind of testing new theories and workouts and ideas. What do you think is an appropriate balance between being very science-oriented but also giving yourself the freedom to experiment? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think often as coaches, we're probably, in, in some senses, we're ahead of some of the science. You know, we're, we're innovating. We're, like you said, we're trying new ideas, seeing whether it works or not. Um, I think, you know, I suppose science gives the framework for, for kind of a, a strong evidence base that you can use up, up to a point. Um, I suppose there, there, are, there are two things I'd say probably about the science is that although when we look at studies, people report that the headline, you know, there was, I'm making this figure up, but there was a 5% improvement. But what you forget, and perhaps as scientists, what we don't do very well is report how big a range there was of, of that adaptation. So not everybody improved by 5%. That's just the average. And there, there will be people that responded well and people that didn't respond quite so well to that kind of um, training method. And, and I think as, as coaches, you pick up on that. And, and so as a, as a scientist, you work with a, a sample. But as a coach, you work with an individual. And I think that's the really big difference. And I think, um, you know, as, as a coach, you, you want to experiment with things. And I think in many ways, you, you work as a scientist would work in the sense that you, you kind of make a hypothesis, you test people, you get some kind of baseline recording of where they're at, you implement the, the intervention, the training that you want to do, and then you, you kind of reassess where they are. And that's very much a kind of scientific approach. So I think, you know, I would strongly encourage coaches to experiment. And I, I suppose, as, a, as someone who's kind of run some coach education programs, you know, been involved in that side of things. One of the things I, I don't see coaches doing, you know, as, as coaches, we ask runners to keep training diaries. I don't see many coaches keeping coaching diaries. And, and, and 
I think that's really important. If you want to experiment, you, you've got to record all this information and, and have it available so you can then come back and look for patterns and, and see what's working and what's not working, who's responding, who's not responding. That's fascinating. And and I don't think in, in all my years of being a running coach, I've never kept a, a coaching journal or a coaching log. Let, let's dive into that a little bit more and, and talk about what might be included in that kind of uh, a reflection journal and, and some of the things that we really might be looking for. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose there's, there's two bits out there. There's the kind of hard and fast data of the, the session you've done, who's there, what times they've run. Um, but then I think there's also, um, for me at least, there's a reflective part in, in that. And maybe you're making comments about, you know, so-and-so ran well, so-and-so looked like they were tired, but also maybe things about how I interacted with people and, you know, whether I thought I'd implemented the session well, whether there were things I could have done better, maybe some points that I might need to pick up on. You know, somebody had made a comment and perhaps I didn't have time at the session to pick up on it. And I'll, I'll make a note of that so I can go hook back and maybe email them or WhatsApp them or catch them at the next training session. Um, and so, so things like that, you know, I, I suppose I'll give you one example. We had um, a training session this year. I just started coaching a new group. Um, they haven't really raced very much. And we, we did a session and we started with um, an 800 meter rep at 1500 meter pace. And then we were going to go down to shorter stuff after that. And, and they were way off the pace at, for the 800 meter rep. Um, but we didn't have time in the session to kind of work out why. And, and really, it was partly that um, they didn't know what the session was. And so it caught them off guard a little bit. But also, they, they perhaps their minds weren't really on it. They came in, you know, they were chatting away and lots of banter and, and they weren't really focused. And so the next day at training, we, we chatted about, well, why was it so bad? Because, you know, you were five seconds off pace in the first 100 meters. And, and then from there, we kind of unpicked all that. And, and um, we, we then came up with a system of making sure everyone knew what the session was in advance so they weren't unprepared and, and so on. So it changed the way we worked as a group. Um, but it also, it was that opportunity to go away, think about it and come back the next day and decide how to deal with it as well. Kind of, and I, I suppose it's just those kind of things you can, you can have things that you can then go back to. I think that's the the value of uh, an actual training log for runners too, is you can just reflect on it and go back and, you know, it's almost like you have the archaeological record <laughs> for your training. And, and, and this concept for coaches, I think is really helpful because it provides a record of kind of like the, the human experience, the human interaction, not the hard and fast data. You know, there's a lot of very objective metrics that we can track as runners and coaches, but a lot of the softer sides of things, it's a little bit more difficult to track. It's subjective. It's how people are kind of emotionally relating to workouts and volume and workload and all those things. And I just think that is such an interesting idea to track those things um, from the other side, from the coach's side, because that's something that we don't usually talk enough about. And it would likely make coaches more accountable to their athletes because, now, you know, they actually have to reflect back on things that that did work, that didn't work, and, and hopefully improve that process over time so that they can become better coaches. Yeah, that's right. We have a, a, a PhD student at the moment, Karen Johns, just finishing her PhD, and she interviewed a whole load of coaches and she was interested in planning. She wanted to see how coaches started the year with like a, a periodized program 
and then how that might change during the year and whether people modified it or didn't modify it. Um, and she did a, a first set of interviews at the beginning of the season with, she had about uh, 25, 30 coaches. And, and the one thing that came out of the interview was that although they did construct some kind of periodized plan, there was absolutely actually loads and loads of things that they were planning for that we wouldn't normally consider. So they were planning for how they were going to interact with their athletes. They were planning with the junior athletes, at least. They were planning how they were going to interact with the parents. They were planning how they would interact with the club, you know, in terms of club wanted them to race, the coach didn't want them to race and, and things like that, or, or vice versa, you know, however it might be. So there's a whole load of things that were going on that coaches were doing that we don't really think of. We just think of the physical plan, the training sessions, but actually it's so much more complex than that. Yeah, I, I really am so interested in that whole side of things and and how runners can really take all that to heart and use it to improve their training as well. Because I think when we do a little bit better job of tracking some of those softer elements of the sport and and how we're relating to the sport, how we're doing emotionally on a day-to-day basis, you know, how ready we are cognitively and emotionally for a big workout or a long run, you know, those things that are stressful. Uh, tracking something like that over time can be really hel- helpful for keeping your motivation on track, for making sure that you're still driven to train hard and all that. Now, now, Phil, most of us runners, you know, we don't have coaches. We don't have a coach. Most of us adult runners are kind of uh, self-coached. So let's try to help these athletes do a, a lot of this coaching work themselves. And, and maybe we can start with improvement and maybe some common misconceptions about how to get faster. Do you see some of these common misconceptions about improving performance that you might consider low hanging fruit that we could fix and maybe start seeing progress fairly quickly? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, I suppose, you know, some of the quick things you can do are things like changing your warm up. depends what your warm up's like. Um, you know, there aren't very many people that use um, priming activity in their warm up, for example, but then yet that's something that's really simple to include effective at improving performance um, you know, there's there's plenty of evidence to to show that. Um, Steve Ingham and a group at Loughborough University did a study looking at 800 meter runners, and they included one 200 meter run at 800 meter pace, and that was 20 minutes before the the time trial, and they improved by about one percent. And that doesn't sound like very much, but it, if it's just in your warm up, getting a one percent gain is is quite noticeable. You know, so you could improve the quality of your sessions as well as the quality of your races as well, I think. Um, so there's, there's something like that, a sort of real quick thing that you can incorporate into your training that would make a difference. Um, personally, I'm a, I'm a big strength and conditioning fan. I think there's, there's too many runners out there that, that don't do conditioning work and they, they end up in that kind of injury cycle. And I think for me, strength and conditioning, the, the first role of it is to reduce injury risk. And then the second part of that is to improve performance. So I'm, I'm very keen. I think there's, there's lots and lots of people could, could improve their, you know, their consistency, if nothing else. And I think if you're, if you're consistent in your training, you can make so much more progress. Um, so I, I would say, you know, there are um, a couple of really easy things that people could do to improve. Obviously, everybody at some point gets injured. And I, I was listening to your, your podcast with Brody Sharp the other day. And, uh, and Brody says some great stuff about 
um, not resting when you're injured. You know, do some other stuff, do some some rehab work, some strength and conditioning work, and, and, and you know, rather than getting into that cycle where you just keep resting and getting weaker, and then more likely to get injured again. And I think that that for me was was quite a, a real kind of thought about oh yeah yeah we definitely you know that's something that I I'm poor at doing and perhaps prescribing as well as a coach. And I think um, that's a really really good idea and a good kind of of way forward. Um, other things I suppose that I see with people is um, their training programs. I think um, when I talk to coaches and talk to athletes, they don't always seem to have a structure. Now maybe for some people they don't want that, but I think if you're a competitive athlete with serious goals then having a structure to your program. And, and I see two components to that structure. One is on a, a sort of macro level. So you're looking over a long period of time and you're plotting and planning your progressions. So the, the kind of periodized model, if you, if you want to use the jargon, I suppose. But the other part is to look at the week and look at how the training spans out across the week. Because I think when people overtrain, they often have too much that's too hard in their weeks. Uh, and it's getting that balance between having the hard sessions and the recovery within that um, within that cycle, that weekly cycle. You know, I've been coaching for about 11 years, and I think that structure is probably the number one thing that helps runners improve when they're at the beginner intermediate level is simply putting someone's running into some sort of structure that properly spaces out their effort over the week so that, you know, they're not running a workout and then taking a day off and then running another hard workout and then taking a day off and then doing their long run. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of ways that you can improve runners training simply through the structure and how they're patterning their workouts and how everything progresses from week to week. So I, I think that is such an important thing to say, Phil. So I'm really glad you said it. And, and so many people don't give that enough consideration because it's really the structure that helps propel runners forward. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm entirely with you on that. I, I think it is a really critical factor. Uh, maybe at the elite level, it, it might be slightly different, but like you say, at the beginner and intermediate level, I think there's so much to gain from having that. And, and I agree with you. It's about the week and making sure your week works. But I think also the progression from month to month and, and year to year, I think it makes a real big difference. And, and that kind of ties in with recording that information, both as a coach and as a runner and looking for the patterns in what works for you. Right. And my listeners will know that uh, I'm frequently talking about how I love tracking monthly mileage instead of weekly mileage. It forces you to think a little bit more long term. And it's something that doesn't require you to put in those mega mileage days. So if you're trying to hit a certain mileage number for a given week, well, Friday might roll around and man, you need to get in a bunch of miles to hit your goal <laughs> if, you're, if you didn't plan properly. Whereas if you're thinking about the entire month, it forces you to think more long-term, think big picture, not take as many risks with your training. And I think that's a more productive approach to it. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. Actually, I remember going on a coaching course once and um, we just got to the end and we were, we were finishing it. And there was a guy who was on the course and he was just going off to, to go for a run. And uh, the, the person that's running the course said to him, you know, have you not done enough this weekend? And he said, oh, I'm just going out for three quarters of a mile because I want to get my 100 miles for the week. And it's, <laughs> isn't it? it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it kind of, like you say, you know, that monthly thing, it, it kind of prevents those kind of, you know, unnecessaries, doesn't it? It's, uh, 
Yeah, m- normal people would look at that and just think us runners are we've got to screw loose. And and I yeah. will <laughs> I will openly admit to being that kind of a runner for many <laughs> many years, having a nice even number for the weekly mileage, even for the monthly mileage, just makes me feel good, and, and I just love to have it. Uh, now, Phil, I do want to drill down a little into a little bit more detail on something you mentioned before about warming up and how that could be a really helpful way of stimulating some additional improvement for runners. Now, is there a difference in your mind between warming up for a run and priming? Is there is that just a difference in terminology or, or is there a subtle difference between those? Okay, so um, I see the warm-up as consisting of various components. So I think you need to go out and you need to do something that's going to, to raise your temperature. So, you know, it's you know, warm up by, by name. I think you have to go out and do that. Um, the priming elements, there, there's a lot of research showing that um, if you do a, a, a short, high intensity effort, not, not a maximal effort, but you know, reasonably high intensity. So I think for runners, maybe 800, 1500 meter pace and maybe sort of, you know, 40 seconds, 30, 40 seconds depending kind of what level of runner you are, perhaps. So sort of like a 200-meter effort that when you then um, come to perform, whether it's the race, well, certainly it's kind of the research, I suppose, is focused on races, but we've used it um, with our athletes. Um, in the races, in the, in the main kind of effort, then there's an improvement in performance in terms of how long people can go, how long people can last for at a certain level of effort. Um, they produce less lactate, they use... Um, more aerobic energy for that same effort um, compared to, to not having primed. So I think that, you know, the, the priming seems to change metabolically what's working. It seems to switch on the aerobic system quicker. Um, so so we tend to do our kind of our run and then we come back to the track, we do a, a priming effort and then we go through a series of dynamic drills and then a few sprints and then we're into our session. This is going to sound like a foreign language to those beginner runners who (laughs) might be thinking, well, aren't I just going to be really tired for my race if I'm doing, you know, all of these warm up activities? Because, you know, I I think you're right. The warm up is is a bunch of different things. It might be a series of dynamic flexibility exercises, some easy running drills, strides, and, and maybe some of these priming activities like a short effort at a relatively fast pace. Um, how do you counter that objection that, you know, I'm just going to be really tired from my race. If I do all this work, don't I just want to run easy for five or 10 minutes and get on the starting line? Try it. <laughs> Would be my advice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, when, when people have come into my training group and they, they've done that kind of warm up, they're, they're shocked at how hard it is. Uh, and then, you know, and, and so I do get that kind of, I'm going to be really tired for this session. And you just say, well, just, you know, run the session, see what you can do. And then, you know, they have a great session. They run really well. And they're kind of like, wow, you know, it was great tonight. And they say, well, yeah, because you've warmed up properly. And and slowly they they kind of start to form that link. So, uh, yeah, I would say try it. I think, you know, there needs to be a period of time between when your warm-up ends and when your race starts, clearly. Um, And, you know, I guess if you're in a a big, you know, race with thousands of people, then maybe it's more difficult to do that. But certainly the um, the work that was done on the 800 meters and the priming, they did the, the 200 meters at 800 meter race pace 20 minutes before they did the time trial. 
So they were trying to um, kind of recreate that situation at championships where you have your warm up and then you get taken off to a holding zone before you go out to race. And I think for most people, sort of 20 minutes before they're due to start, they can probably find somewhere where they can they can do that even in a big race. So that there is a, there is a kind of time lag, if you like. Um, so that sense of being tired, you might feel tired doing it, but you're still going to have, by the time you finish your drills and your strides, you're probably going to have five to 10 minutes before you start. Now, do you think about the warm-up process as being different for different types of races? So for example, if someone's getting ready for a 5K, is their warm-up going to be very much different than someone who's getting ready to race a marathon? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, I don't suppose there's, there's a whole lot of evidence that would work either way. I, I guess for the marathon, you'll probably need less. I mean, I think things like the priming activity are, are really good when the, you need the aerobic system to switch on quickly. Um, and so that the longer you go, the less important that becomes because you're going to be racing at a speed below your steady state. So then probably it's not going to make too much difference. Um, but if you're racing at an intensity above your maximum steady state, so maybe 5Ks or lower, then I, I think that perhaps the priming activity is far more important. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. It just seems like the shorter and faster and more intense the race is, the more important your warm-up is to be intense and, and fairly, uh, maybe even difficult. Uh, you know, it's interesting to hear you say some people come into my training group and they're surprised at how hard our warmups are. Well, I'd rather a hard warm up and then a fast race than an easy warm up in a slightly slower race. So (laughs) wouldn't everybody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So there, there's a good trade off there. And, And I think just recognizing the fact that if you're racing something short, like a two mile or a 5k, you really need to be running that pace right from the gun, right from the start of the race. You need to be running what your goal is for one mile, two mile, three miles, whatever the distance of this short race is. And you really can't do that if you haven't warmed up to that level, because by its very definition, those paces are really hard. So that warm up is just so critical to getting you ready metabolically to be working at that intensity level right from the start and not have it be a shock to your system. Yeah, for sure. But I, I, you know, I mean, we tend to focus on racing, but I think it's also critical for your training sessions as well. You know, if you're going to do intervals and you're going to be running intervals at 3k, 5k pace, you know, then I think you need to be ready for that as well. Yeah, that's a good point too. Maybe strides aren't really sufficient if you're doing a really grueling workout. What what might you suggest? Is this another example where, you know, maybe a single 200 at uh, an 800 meter race pace would be sufficient? Yeah, um, we tend to do 200 at 1500 meter pace. Uh, I kind of chatted with Andy Jones, who's done a bit of this work, um, and his tend to be a little bit harder. But I think there's that kind of trade off, isn't there, between how much of an effect you get, but how tired you get, maybe. And um, I think in, in the training sessions, we probably have less time. You know, you're constricted, aren't you, in terms of what time you have available? Certainly, we are. You know, we, we might have an hour training session or an hour and a quarter training session. And you, you don't want to then have finished your, your kind of your, your priming, your drills, um, your, your strides, and then wait 10 minutes before you start the session. I kind of want to get going. So, a, so I use a little bit of a trade-off and I tend to go with something probably around 1,500 meter mile pace for a 200, um, do that. But, but to try and buy the time between doing that and starting the session, we tend to go out and run and then come back, do our 
priming activity and then go into the drills and the strides. So by the time we've, we've ready to start the session, you've got the benefits of it and the fatigue from it is dissipating. This is a really fascinating idea. And I want one of our listeners to try this and let me know how it goes. Yeah, do. I'll, I'll be really interested too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially if they're someone who's been doing workouts regularly and has really dialed in their performances in workouts. It'd be interesting to see how they respond over a couple of weeks by doing something like this. Yeah, that'd be a really neat field study. I'll be really interested in that. Yeah. So Phil, I, I want to transition a little bit to uh, some ideas that you think are prevalent in the running community that might actually be holding people back. If you could take a couple of these unproductive ideas and, and simply remove them from the running community, what might some of those be? Uh, I suppose um, no pain, no gain. As, a, as an athlete, um, I chronically overtrained. Um, when I was probably sort of 19, 20, I, I, I overtrained quite badly. Um, hadn't really appreciated that I, I'd done that. And it was very much a kind of go out the door and try and run as hard as you can every day situation. And I went to um, a talk by David Costill, presumably you'll, you'll know of Costill. Um, and, and for those that, listeners that don't know, he was the kind of leading physiologist in, in running through the 1970s and 1980s. He was I suppose in many ways the the founding father of the scientific research stuff really to a large extent and he was in london he was doing a talk and it was about overtraining so i went along not knowing anything about it and his very first slide said the purpose of training is to stimulate growth growth only occurs during periods of rest and recovery and, and that it was one of those kind of light bulb moments for me you know i'd never really thought about having to have the rest and recovery to enable you to get the adaptations from all the hard work that you do and it completely transformed how i saw training as a as a an athlete it informed what i do as a coach it informs how i teach training to my students at the university you know it's uh, it, it's one of those kind of real key moments for me i think so i'd say yeah no pain, no gain would be one of those I would get rid of. I think uh, there is the importance of recovery. Yeah, that's a really important one. Uh, and, I, and I see that a lot, especially uh, with my, my intermediate runners who have gotten the running bug. They really want to start improving. They've run a couple races. You know, they've just been, they're now enamored by running. And, and they think the path forward is to try to run faster every single time they go out and run. You know, so they have their four or five mile neighborhood loop and they have their time that they get on it and they try to run faster every time. It's a story I've heard a thousand times. <laughs> I can see you raising your hand now on, on video. <laughs> yeah, that, that was me. <laughs> That's what I did wrong. <laughs> now you have a, your book is really interesting because it, it's very science heavy. And so you had to review a lot of studies, a lot of research, uh, what are what are some of the things that we're now learning that we used to believe, but but aren't really true anymore? Is, is this something that uh, you know we're we're finding out that some of these long held beliefs that we might have had thirty forty years ago simply aren't true anymore, and we need a new model? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I suppose there are a couple of things I would I would pick up. I think the static stretching thing. Um, you know we. People used to be told they needed static stretch and, and there's no real evidence that either it reduces injury and certainly no evidence that it improves performance in any way. So I, I think that, you know, we've moved, we're beginning to move away from that. And certainly I see more people doing dynamic stretches now, 
prior to training sessions and races, which, which you never used to see. Um, but there's still a lot of people talking about, oh, yeah, I'm going to go home and stretch because I'm a bit stiff. And, and I don't think there's really much evidence to support um, that it's effective doing that. And I, I suppose also um, weightlifting, if we look at the you know strength and conditioning work, when we look at the stuff that works for runners, actually lifting heavy is really good. And I, you had um, a podcast, didn't you, um, by Chris Napier. He was talking about lifting heavy. And I, and I think, you know, Chris, Chris has got it right there. I think that the, the heavy reps are, are really important, the benefits that you gain, you know, um, particularly when you see some of the big compound lifts are, are really good. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, you don't, the idea I guess was that you got big and bulky, but actually you don't, um, you know. So, yeah, so I guess those, those would be two of the things I would try and um, say we're moving away from, I think. Certainly with the, with the lifting, there's quite a strong evidence base emerging about heavy lifts and, and improving running economy for sure. And um, some of Rich Blagrove's PhD studies showed um, improvements in things like 20 meter speed. Um, you know, so you can improve a bit of your, you can improve your top end speed and you can improve your running economy. It's, uh, it's a bit of a win-win really and, and, and reducing injury risk. Yeah, what's not to love? I mean, there are just so many benefits to weightlifting for runners that are just so attractive. I mean, I, I, I'm a runner who kind of grew up in the dark days when all we did was static stretching before our runs. And then when we did get in the weight room, which was sporadic and rare, we would lift for endurance. We'd do like four sets of 15 or 20 repetitions. And I think that was really common, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. I'm really glad to see things moving in the other direction where, you know, we're getting in the weight room and we're doing we- we're doing weight room things. We're trying to get strong. We're trying to build power. We are trying to lift heavy weight and improve the amount that we can lift over time. And that is going to make us into much more powerful strong runners. Now, Phil, you did say something really interesting early earlier that I think is a very common experience among runners. You said, you know, these runners say, oh, I'm feeling really stiff. I'm going to go home and do some static stretching. And we're finding that that's really not helpful. So like pretty much every runner out there who feels stiff or tight from time to time, if static stretching isn't the answer when they do feel stiff or tight, what should we be doing instead? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, probably not really my bag, but, um, I think that there is some evidence to show that foam rolling is, is effective or, or at least more effective, some kind of myofascial release. Um, but yeah, I'm far from a, an, an expert on the recovery strategies. Um, but again, I think, you know, if you are well conditioned, it does tend to, um, reduce that kind of level of stiffness that you get. And even just doing some, some, you know, relatively low intensity dynamic exercises, I think probably trying to help it a little bit. I guess that's anecdotal rather than evidence based. Um, but certainly I think, you know, in terms of the, the evidence base, I think things like foam rolling and there is, there is evidence for some nutritional interventions. So one of my colleagues, Lynn Howardson, he does work on, on cherry juice and, um, you know, there's, there's evidence to show that that reduces the sort of stiffness and soreness after. Of this really high level, um, eccentric activity and running is typically that kind of activity. So yeah, so there's, there's different things that you can do. I think it was interesting when you said, if you're highly conditioned, then, you know, this probably isn't going to be a a huge issue for you. You're not going to be so stiff that you're not going to be able to do your workout the next day. And and I think this goes almost goes back to our discussion earlier about training structure. If the structure of your training 
is right for you and it's well-structured, you really shouldn't be feeling so stiff and sore that it's problematic. Because after all, if you're running appropriate paces, you're running workouts that are appropriate for your fitness level and goals, and you're running everything at the appropriate pace, then you really shouldn't be sore. There should be just a little bit of fatigue, just a little bit of low-grade soreness over time that's prompting those adaptations. So it really gets back to, well, did you do something silly in your training that wasn't part (laughs) of the structure? Did you run your 15-mile long run a minute per mile faster than you were supposed to? Or you went out for 15 miles when you really should have only run 11. Those are the times where you're going to feel a little bit too sore, a little bit too tight. And if we can get the training right first, I always, I always come back to just get the training right. And that just solves so many problems for runners. And that just seems like such a productive way of, of thinking about this. Yeah, I think we've all had those times when we get a little bit over-enthusiastic, don't we? I think you just kind of have to remember that, you know, it's train smarter, not harder necessarily, and and kind of just checking yourself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of things that we're kind of moving away from and, and things that we should start doing, you know, we're doing less static stretching, but we're doing more lifting heavy. Something else that's new in the running community within the last five to 10 years or, you know, everyone has a smartwatch these days. And I had a really interesting conversation with a runner a couple of weeks ago. She pulled me aside and she was like, what should I pay attention to on my watch? Because these watches will tell you almost everything. They'll give you a recovery score. They'll score your sleep. They'll tell you about your vertical oscillation rate and your symmetry and all these other things. What should we actually be paying attention to? from our smartwatch and and what are the metrics that it gives us that we could reliably ignore or or maybe even just take with a grain of salt yeah that's a great question um i think the first thing is it, we're, we're back to kind of training logs you know record something you, you need to have you know if you want to to improve over time you need to have something that you record consistently over time so that you can monitor and, and see what's going on um I suppose that the, the big things are, are, you know, as a, as a runner, the training load is about intensity and volume. And so you need something that has those two, two factors in it. Um, so, you, you know, you need to record something about those. Now, whether you choose to do them separately or whether you choose to combine them and record some kind of trimp, um, which is, which stands for training impulse. Um, you know, there are, there are different kind of approaches. Personally, I, I, I try and calculate a trip rather than the weekly mileage. I think it's easier to to stop people thinking about those big totals. Um, but the, the downside is that there are lots of different trips out there that you can use, and the score from one isn't comparable with the score for another, which may be a good thing, maybe a bad thing, depending how you how you look at it. Um, so I, I think there are, there are things that we can do that we can use. Um, some of the the sort of uh, vertical oscillations and things like that, I think could be really interesting. I don't think we have a big enough evidence base at the minute to use them in any kind of meaningful scientific way. But I think they offer lots of insight into when we're fatigued and our technique starts to change. So there's a, a guy at uh, University of California, Davis, um, Shaveen Riazati, he did his PhD with us. And as part of his PhD, we looked at interval training. We had recreational runners and they did um, I can't remember if it was five or six 800 meter reps. 
and the, the recovery was the same length of time as they ran for the rep. Um, and what we found, we looked at the biomechanics, we we're doing a biomechanical study, and towards the end of the rep, most of the runners, their, their running style started to deteriorate, and they lost strength in their glutes, particularly their glute med. And when we looked at them the next day, they came back 24 hours later and ran again. There were a handful of those runners whose technique and running style, whatever you want to call it, hadn't recovered. And so these people were, were presumably then at greater risk of injury. Most people had recovered, but there were some that hadn't. And I think that um, the watches and the, and the wear, you know, the foot pods and, and so on, I think they they hold you know quite a lot of potential for us in the future to say, well, okay, today my you know my form's not back to where it should be. Um, maybe I just need to back off. You know, maybe do something different. Maybe cross train. Maybe run at a much slower pace. Um, so I think the wearable tech is definitely, you know, the route for the future. Um, I just don't think we know enough about how to use it all necessarily at the moment. That's always been my issue with some of the, the fancy metrics that these smartwatches can give you. It's that, you know, once you know some of these numbers, you know, your vertical oscillation rate or, you know, your uh, left to right foot symmetry or any of the other things that they track, well, then what? What do you actually do with that information? And if you don't have a plan to incorporate it in your training, to make adjustments to your training, it's not really that valuable, is it? So I'm always looking for actionable advice from the the metrics that we're tracking. So, you know, something that I actually really like, something like cadence. Cadence is a metric that I think is actually helpful as opposed to some other metrics where, you know, most runners don't even know what they mean. So cadence is one that's really helpful. Um, and when it comes to, you know, those metrics that you, you don't think are helpful. Um, and, and for me personally, I'm kind of thinking about those recovery scores. You know, whenever my watch tells me, oh, you need 18 hours to recover from this workout. I, I just don't really believe that. But w- what are some things that you think runners should view with a grain of salt? Yeah, so I, I think the recovery ones, I think they're just... Um you know, like, like you, I, I, I'm not sure how they're calculated. Um, I think some of these stress indi- indices that are calculated too, I'm never very sure about um, where they've come from. And I know a lot of the watches do things like VO2 max scores and stuff like that. And I'm just really uncertain about them as well. I, th- I think, um, you know, there's, there's they're, they're based on generalized equations and, you know, everybody's so different and they run in different ways. So I'm, I'm just, you know, uncertain about them, I think. Yeah, I tend to really focus on the objective metrics, things like, you know, the distance that you ran, the pace that you ran it, any splits from a workout or segments of the run, um, you know, your cadence, things that aren't really open to interpretation, hard, objective numbers from your training. Yeah, one of the things we found with um, Shaveen's study, this um, study with the 800 meters and looking at the, the biomechanical um, changes over the interval training session was that everybody has a, a, a variation from step to step. So we looked at things like ground contact time. And as people fatigued, that, that amount of variation expanded. So they, they became more, uh, you know, their style became, became more erratic, if you like. And that was a kind of indicator of fatigue in most people. So I think um, it's early days of some of this, but I think some of the metrics we could have is things like cadence. Is your cadence very steady at the beginning? Is it begin, beginning to change as you fatigue? It could be cadence. It could be 
crown contact times if you're using foot pods or, or other devices. So I think there's, there's things like that that maybe might give us an indicator of, of people tiring during sessions and maybe there's a, a kind of level. But certainly we know that um, increased variability in terms of um, things like ground contact time are quite a strong precursor to injuries. So as, as that kind of goes up, that could be perhaps problematic too. Yeah, that's really, it's so fascinating to think about, you know, just from an anecdotal perspective, because I personally remember from my training, if I had a really hard workout or a very challenging long run, I would feel certain mechanical issues with my running the next day when I was tired. And one of the ways in which I started to kind of break my own chronic injury cycle was I would really focus on the strength movements that helped me maintain good movements even when I was tired. And a lot of this is something I I find very difficult to explain. It's almost like it was a more intuitive feeling sort of experience for me. And I had to kind of just work through that. I'm really interested in this. So what were you thinking about when you were running? What were the key points that, you know, in terms of monitoring how you felt, what were you focusing on body parts or breathing rate or what, what were you thinking about? Mostly it was sort of proprioception, how my body was moving through space, uh, and also just on certain bodily sensations. So I knew that, you know, if the fatigue that I was experiencing, uh, if I had more soreness in my left glute med, which is kind of my problem area, I have IT band issues on my left leg. If, you know, I make a silly training decision and if I throw that structure (laughs) out the window, (laughs) you know, I'm going to have some IT band issues. And so I would feel that the next day if I was very tired, uh, it would just feel like, okay, my, my glute is sore. I can just feel like I'm just, my stride feels choppier. It doesn't feel as smooth. I don't feel as powerful. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about how I'm feeling and it's not feeling very good. And so I knew if I was in one of those situations, I just really needed to be more cognizant of, you know, any kind of left hip drop, uh, any sort of, you know, uh, that knee collapsing inward a little bit more on that left side. So those were my personal problem areas and something that I just intuitively felt over time as I was going through this hard training. And it was something that strength training was really helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that all kind of fits together. Yeah. That makes sense in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, I wonder how many people actually do that as they run. They have the headphones in and they're, they're just listening to the music or whatever they're doing and they're not really tuned into to their own bodies and how their bodies are working. Yeah. The way I think about it is if you're going to do something very hard, it pay, it pays to pay more attention to your body when it's doing that hard thing, because then you can get better at it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, Phil, uh, you have put together such an amazing book with so many different uh, uh, perspectives from the scientific community, and you really just had to immerse yourself in, you know, the latest science on physiology and mechanics and nutrition, so many other different areas. I know we talked a little bit about this previously, you mentioned a couple things, but is there anything in the, the current science and your experiences creating this book uh, anything that was a little bit surprising to you and how we think about training that have happened over the last five to 10 years? You know, we mentioned moving away from static stretching and lifting heavy, but what are some new ideas or uh, false dichotomies we might have uncovered from the latest research? 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, there's there's been some really good publications out recently um, on the back of the sub to our marathon project, where they where they had the group of people and they've tested them. And you know, traditionally we've we've measured running performance by VO two max, running economy, and maximum steady state. You know, lactate threshold or whatever you want to call it. You know, or whatever whatever you want to call it. You know. So those three things have dominated scientific research, and on the back of that. Um, project they measured all of those things in the runners but they didn't really explain fully you know who were the best marathon runners and and they're, they're you know off the back of there they're now saying well actually there are some runners who are really fatigue resistant more than other runners and so this idea of fatigue resistance is beginning to, to emerge um, and, and that's a kind of completely different quality and we don't really understand what fatigue resistance is and um and how you measure it even, I think, you know, I guess that's the problem as a scientist, isn't it? If you can't measure something, you can't study it. <laughs> so we, we kind of have to have some sense of how we, how we measure that. Um, so I, I think that's probably going to come in and we're going to start to, to think a little bit about, about that. And I suspect personally, I suspect that's tied in with conditioning and, and you know, that ability to, uh, to continue to have, you know, muscle contractions with that, without fatigue is, is something that's, um, really important so I, th- I think that's going to be something that's going to emerge in terms of our understanding of what makes a good runner because um, we don't really have that at the minute there's been lots of good stuff on um the middle distances i know this is probably sort of too short for for many of the audience but certainly things like the 800 meters where we've, we've seen work from gareth sanford looking at things like the anaerobic speed reserve and and tying that in with 800 meter performances um and some of his his work was looked at um, the races and championships, and you know if you're not in the first five at the bell in the 800 meters, then you're probably not going to be in the medals. And if you're not in the first three, you're probably not going to win. And so that need to be quick that is important because if you're going to be an 800 meter runner, then you're going to have to do something to develop your speed because the peak speeds those guys are reaching are, you know, like nine meters per second. You know, which is which is you know sort of eleven seconds per hundred meters pace. So at points in the race, they have to be able to run at that that speed. So you know your training program and development of your athletes has to enable them to to reach those speeds. And I think maybe we you know rather than focusing just on building people's endurance necessarily, maybe we actually need to go back and develop some some real sprinting speed in those those athletes. Um, so those kind of things, and um, another area where where people are, are beginning to look at is, um, you know, we've looked at recovery strategies, and we've been looking at ice baths and things like that. And people are kind of coming full circle away from ice baths. Although the ice baths reduce the inflammation, then maybe they're actually reducing the signalling for the body to adapt as well. And so perhaps after your training session, you you don't want to have that ice bath. You you want that stiffness soreness because maybe it's telling your body to adapt and it's giving a, a stronger signal whereas the ice bath is, is to use the phrase dialing it down you know it, it, but if you're if you're say racing at a championships and you've got two races in two days then it's more about recovery and less about adaptation and so you might want the the ice bath or whatever you're going to do cryotherapy or whatever between those races and, and so we're beginning to find a way through some of the recovery strategies work and, and see it a little bit more of a, a nuanced approach, maybe. That's fascinating. And I, I love the three different areas that you covered with ice baths, maybe to make this actionable for our listeners. 
you know, save the ice baths for when you've done something silly in your training and (laughs) you're, you're a little bit too sore or you're running multiple races over one day or two days or three days. And you are really going for recovery. Uh, and then the 800 meter example, I think is great just because, you know, for most of us adult runners, we rarely come close to our maximum sprinting speed. And, and I think developing, the ability to sprint is a skill and it will only help our running. Even if we are marathoners, I think it's going to help our mechanics. It's going to help our power. Uh, and then the first area is funny. You were talking, I was like, okay, I need to ask Phil, uh, what exactly is fatigue resistance and how we measure it? And you were like, (laughs) well, we can't do either. Can we talk a little bit more about it? Because I do think it's just so fascinating. And, you know, I don't have the, the background as you do to, to talk about this with the same kind of authority. And I would just love to hear more about, what might be included in this metric we're calling fatigue resistance and how we might be able to measure it? Yeah. So, uh, in fact, my, my very first piece of published research back in 2004, now God, that's been such a long time ago, um, we looked at, um, we had runners run to exhaustion at the speed of VO2 max, um, which is, I guess for most people, that's probably something around their 3K pace, two-mile pace, Um and we measured their their changes in their their running mechanics from the beginning to the end, and you know there was, there was a change in running style. But what we had also done in the days before was we'd measured um, eccentric hamstring function. So we we got them to do a thirty second test uh, on an isokinetic machine. So that controls the speed at which you can move at. So you push as hard as you can or pull as hard as you can, and. Um, but but you, you the, the bar only moves at a set speed, so you were, you we're trying to measure how much output there was from the, the hamstrings. And what we found was that the, the changes in running gait were really strongly correlated with the, the hamstring performance. So the people with the the best output in the thirty second test were the ones that showed the smallest changes in running style. Um, so so maybe fatigue resistance is perhaps more of a, a muscular or neuromuscular factor than a metabolic factor. And I think, um, you know, as scientists, we've tended to focus on the metabolic things because they're easy to measure. And we've neglected measuring a lot of the, the more neuromuscular things in terms of, you know, ability to, to recruit muscles and the function of those muscles. So I think I think that side of things is, is probably where we need to drive. Um, so it could be muscle strength. It could be muscle endurance. Um, you know, it could be muscle activation patterns as people fatigued. Are they starting to switch off certain muscle groups or, or not use them properly? And I think that's probably the avenue to go down looking at fatigue resistance. So fascinating. I can't wait to learn more about it. Phil, this was a great conversation about so many different topics. I feel like we covered so much and we could probably keep talking for another hour or two. <laughs> but uh, if folks want to learn more about you and your work and, and check out your book, where can they go? Okay. Uh, so the book you can find on Amazon or, or anywhere like that. That's that's fairly easy to do. It's actually Blagrove and Hayes. So Rich Blagrove is the uh, is the other co-editor with, with me. Um, in terms of my work, then I would say, you know, my, my university webpage is probably the place to go. Um, I don't do much social media. I've got a Twitter account, but I only occasionally post when we've got new publications coming out. Um, and that's just Phil underscore Hayes underscore 13, I think. I can't quite remember. Um, so, yeah, I, I think probably my, my university page or, or even ResearchGate, if you if 
people know what that is. It's perhaps that's perhaps more a bit more academic-y, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I think probably a university page would be the easiest place to find. And, and you know, my email address is on there. People can email me if they have questions. I'm quite happy to answer questions from people. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Phil. And I'll have links to all of those resources in the show notes on strength running. Dr. Phil Hayes, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Jason. My pleasure. Hey, thank you for being here and listening in on this wide-ranging conversation with Phil Hayes. Check out his book on Amazon titled The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running. And if this episode helped you, if you're going to benefit from hearing this conversation, give our podcast a review in Apple Music. I also want to extend a huge thanks to our sponsor, Inside Tracker, for helping me publish these episodes. Inside Tracker wants to help you do what you love for life. They want you to be a successful, healthy runner for decades. They were founded in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding your body's biomarkers, from stress hormones to testosterone to vitamin D, can help you figure out if you're overtraining or optimally training. But the best part is that they give you personalized, optimal ranges for each of those biomarkers and a whole host of ways to improve those markers through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten two of their ultimate tests in the past, and I'm eagerly awaiting my third test. If you want to improve your performance, check in on your longevity goals, and find out where you could improve, Inside Tracker is incredibly helpful. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off any test at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. This is a big deal because these tests are admittedly not cheap. They are looking at a whole host of biomarkers, and it would probably cost you three to four times the amount if you were to do this privately at a blood lab. So stack the odds in your favor and give yourself every advantage to succeed with a personalized blood test. Go to InsideTracker.com slash strengthrunning to save 25% today. All right, that's our show, friends. Thank you for being part of this community and helping make this sport so incredible. We'll be in touch soon. 